Welcome to Mostly Books Meets, the weekly podcast for the incurably bookish. We will be talking to authors and creatives from across the world of publishing and discussing the books they have loved. Looking for a recommendation? Then look no further. Head to your favourite cosy spot and let us pick out your next favourite book. For this week's episode of Mostly Books Meets, we're talking to debut author Shantanu Bhattacharya. Shantanu was included in The Guardian's list of the 10 best new novelists of 2023, and in 2021 he won the Mo Sharon Prize. His novel, One Small Voice, is published on the 23rd of February. It is a beautiful novel, brimming with humanity and populated by a cast of characters that feel so real you could reach out and touch them. Shantanu, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Thank you, Jack. Thanks for having me. No, our absolute pleasure. Um, and how does it feel? Obviously, um, at the time of recording, the book is soon to be released. For you as a debut novelist, how does it feel knowing that your book is soon to sort of uh, go out and meet the general public? Yeah, I think um, it's an exciting time, obviously. And uh, it got really real when I held the hardback for the first time in my hand. You know, before that, we had the proof copies. And somehow it just didn't seem as real for some reason. I mean, even though it is a book format. And I think my partner was quite disappointed when the proof copies came in and I didn't kind of squeal with joy. Uh, <laughs> but I did that when the when the hardbacks came in. And mm. yeah, and it, it I think it's just, um, there's a feeling of, you know, it's it's been a long time coming because I've been working on this for 10 years. Mm. Um, so there's a feeling of uh, restlessness mm. um, that, you know, it, this is what it was all leading up to, and it might as well now be out there in the world. Mm. And in a way, also kind of just feeling relieved that I can, in a way, separate myself from the book and move on. Uh, you know, when you've kind of lived with something for so long and it's just been yours or kind of belong to a very close group of people, such as your publisher and your agent and a few others, it just feels kind of liberating to put it out in the world. And then, you know, everyone can just move on with their lives and do other things. So that feeling's there. There's also a lot of nervousness around what this actually means. Uh, it is a labor of love. It is a, it's quite a complex novel that touches on a lot of things. And while writing, you know, I, I sometimes wondered if there was too much in it, uh, whether I was talking about a lot of different things but I kind of didn't want to censor myself. If my characters were leading me to a certain theme, then I did want to explore it. But now that it's going to be out in the world, there's a bit of nervousness as to, you know, whether people will find find it a bit too much and whether we, they'll be able to you know, wrap their heads around all the different things that are going on. It is someone's life over 30 years. So I felt like I wouldn't do it justice if it wasn't multifarious. Yes, the nature of the story requires it to have you know, many different sort of facets to it. And um, from other authors I've spoken to, you also get that sense of kind of excitement, relief, apprehension, maybe. But the wonderful thing is, is I think readers or, you know, people who who love their books are uh, most of the time, you know, very, very sort of open minded. So any of those worries that authors have, I, you know, I think sort of dissolve away quite quickly when, um, I mean, I'm sure already you're getting kind of early reader responses through, yeah. you know, so you're, you're kind of already seeing, you know, that response, which I think is a nice way of kind of easing into it as opposed to just, you know, bam, publication day. Yeah, going suddenly, in cold. Yeah. You know, all these people who read it. Yes, yeah. And how does it, you know, that feeling of seeing people sort of, you know, that you don't know that are not your publisher or a friend um, must be, yeah, terribly exciting to see strangers reading it. Yeah. And I think the first review we got on NetGalley, which is a platform where 
we put up the book mm. and um, you know for proof version, and then people download and get to read. And the first review was just so good, and I think that just kind of set the tone for me. You know, if the first review was was critical or iffy, I guess it would have been slightly different. Um, but this <laughs> yes, was back yeah. in September, oh, and, and she was just gushing about the book, and you know, she had so many good things to say. And it's yeah, it's been very positive from early readers since then, which has been a relief, but also just feels feels really good. And like you said, I think mm. you know people who will pick up this book are in it for the journey. And then they're kind of open-minded about wherever the story takes them. They're happy, they're, they're happy to follow and, you know, because they're invested in the characters and invested in the story itself. Absolutely. We'll talk, obviously, a bit more about One Small Voice um, later on. Um, but one thing we always like to do on the podcast is kind of go back to the author's um, past. Would you mind telling us a, a little bit about, you know, where you grew up? Were you always into books? Were books kind of a part of your life growing up? Yeah. So I grew up in India and I was born in Bangalore, which is in southern India. It's a big city now. It was always a big city, but kind of has really grown over the last couple of decades because it's called the Silicon Valley of India. So a lot of tech companies have set up shop there over the last few years, and a lot of techies have moved to the city. So it's seen a lot of migration from other parts of India and from abroad. But when I was growing up there, it was actually called a retirement city. And I think it also had the epithet garden city. So it was kind of really slow moving, relaxed, lots of trees, lots of greenery, parks, uh, and a lot of people from like ex-army people, ex-defense people would settle down there. So it had a very, that the kind of relaxed vibe. Yeah. So I was always into books, uh, I guess, partially because my family were always into books. My parents are big readers. And, you know, if they weren't reading books, they were reading the newspaper every day and they were reading kind of magazines, literary magazines. We had t subscriptions to two newspapers and at least five current affairs magazines every month. We had them at our doorstep and, you know, they would get picked up and read by our parents and discussed. Uh, we also started kind of buying books at a very early age. And this was really kind of a combination of a lot of different kinds of books. So my mother tongue is Bengali. So there were some Bengali books that my mother would start kind of reading out to us at bedtime, fairy tales by Bengali authors. So we have Obunindranath Thakur, who is, I'd say, in the Western context, someone like Hans Christian Andersen, whose fairy tales are very famous, but they aren't exactly children's books, like even adults can really, like even if I read those fairy tales today, I'd really enjoy them because the writing is, you know, is quite literary. The themes are, can be quite grown up. So we had that. We also very finally had this um, children's magazine called Misha that came all the way from Russia that my father signed us up for. So that was fun as well because, you know, there were these stories and comics and pictures coming from a part of the world that we were just not familiar with. Uh, and that was kind of opening up the Western world to us, but also Russia specifically. And, you know, a lot of pictures of snow and a lot of pictures of snowmen and things we just didn't know existed or didn't see for ourselves. Um, so that was fun. And then I, can, I think the first set of books that we bought for ourselves was this set of abridged classics. We went to this book fair, I remember, and my parents then bought this set of classics for us. Um, which had all the classics such as the, the Adventures of Robinson Crusoe, 
The Count of Monte Cristo, Adventures of Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn, all of those. And one of those kind of, one of the set was Oliver Twist. And that's the book I remember reading first. And it's kind of stayed with me. And you know, when I think back to reading, that's the book. And if I have a memory of actually, you know, remembering to like where I was sitting and what I was thinking while I was reading it and so on. So, yeah. So I guess that's the, that's kind of the background of where reading came from and all the different things we were reading, but also the stories we were being told. There was a lot of oral storytelling in my childhood as well. It sounds like a wonderful, you know, environment. You kind of, you know, talk about these kind of this quite leafy city. So, you know, sort of open spaces, but also all these, you know, magazine subscriptions. I mean, you know, even just having that around the house, I think kids, you know, even if they're not necessarily picking those up, I think that sort of kind of, you know, it's part of kind of stimulating the mind. So it sounds like, yeah, as, as sort of childhoods go, you know, very sort of, um, you know, stimulating and kind of, uh, were you sort of always encouraged to, you know, kind of share ideas or kind of, you know, um, even make your own stories up? Was that something that happened in your childhood? So in, not so much from adults per se, because the Indian education system is, and I, I think it, it, I'm sure it's changed over time, but back then it, it was quite top down. You know, you had a syllabus and you had textbooks and you know you, you were you were told what to read you were told what to write so there wasn't that much room for creativity in terms of creating your own stories and things like that but i had a sister i still have i have a sister and we were growing up together almost as twins because she's just two years younger than me and so we did a lot of the storytelling with each other so we kind of create these imaginary worlds that we were kind of then characters in and we'd set up, sometimes we'd have like little sets that we would set up on, on the on the terrace and wear all these ridiculous costumes and involve our other friends as well. So we'd do these little skits and there was no audience. I mean, we were just doing it for ourselves. But, but that, I think, led to a lot of creating of stories and characterizations and a lot of debate on, you know, I don't believe in this. Like, this is quite unbelievable. I don't think this character would behave this way, or I don't think he would wear this, or I don't think, I don't think they would speak to each other this way. So it's interesting how kind of the you know the very basics of storytelling start with those kind of mm. debates you would have or the feedback you would get. So you'd go in proposing, or oh, today let's play this game where you're the teacher, you're this teacher, you're this teacher, you're this teacher, and I'm the student, or something like that, and then they'd. You know, it would then become a collaborative effort where people would be like, oh, I think I should play the music teacher because, you know, I sing well or something like that. And yeah, it was fun. It was fun. It was quite, it opened up the imagination quite a bit. This was also a time in the 1980s and early 1990s when we had only one state television channel and there was obviously no internet yet. So there was very little else happening <laughs> which created this sort of time for all of us to, you know, just kind of spend time with friends and uh, and read and think. And, you know, I, I don't know if it would have been possible if I was growing up today with, with technology and all the distractions we have going on. Mm, that's quite a common theme uh, yeah. from some authors we've spoken about is uh, sort of saying that, you know, even now as contemporary writers, that they struggle with the amount of stimulants, really, that are kind of constantly coming our way from our phone, from our computers. Boredom, you know, there's a sweet spot, you know, too much boredom, I think, can be sort of destructive. But, you know, having that at least that free time, maybe boredom's the wrong word, but, you know, that uh, 
it can also be a very sort of stimulating area and kind of encourage that that wonderful sort of uh, flourishing of imagination. Yeah. And I was going to use the word boredom, so I'm happy you used it, but um, okay. it is boredom. And I think it is a prerequisite to creativity in a way that also what is too much boredom, It, I feel like there's some social norming around kind of boredom is a function of the times we live in, right? So right now we get bored really easily because we know that there are five other things we could do. But when I was growing up, I wouldn't think of it as boredom because that was just the understanding of time. You know, I have this time free and it's free time. And if I'm getting bored, I find something to do. I pick up a book or I call a friend over or I go annoy my sister. I don't know. I just find something to do. But you know, I wouldn't think of it as boredom. Mm. Yes, that's a really lovely point. The uh, window of what we consider as boredom has, you know, shifted very dramatically in yeah. these kind of times where the moment you start kind of having a thought and just having a moment to yourself that actually, no, you pick up your phone and, and suddenly you're yeah. imbibing some, some sort of information. Yeah. And I was going to say that because um, I feel like we exist in times where we don't have the opportunity to feel bored at all because we always have our phones. So the moment I find myself doing nothing or with nothing to do, nothing kind of actively occupying myself, I go pick my phone up. And so I'm never bored, which is in a way when I say it, it sounds good that I'm never bored. But actually, I think I'm just kind of consuming a lot of unnecessary content that I probably could have done without. I was going to say trash, but yeah, <laughs> some of it is trash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love how you re- self-regulated there. Just like, no, I think I think trash is fine because I think there is a lot of a large part of the certainly the Internet and what we see on our phones is kind of the the digital version of um, sort of junk mail through the letterbox, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's it, it's stuff that does take up some space in your mind, but actually doesn't mean anything. It's just trying to sell you something or influence you in some way. But um, it is trash. I, I think that's an absolutely <laughs> fine word to use. And I suppose it, it, it explains why we have this idea and why certainly some writers kind of um, this idea of them sort of isolating themselves for a period of time, you know, going to the image of sort of some cottage somewhere and, you know, with no internet or TV, but actually that kind of space where you're sort of forced to focus. I Is that something you, you found was useful for your writing process? So I never really got a chance to go away somewhere to write because I, I also work full time and there's a question of kind of taking time off from work and all of that. But I did write at a time when I knew that I wouldn't be disturbed. So I was writing very early in the morning. So I wake up at four and write until eight before work started. That's a time of day when no one's awake, nothing's really happening. So you're pretty much left to yourself and your own thinking. And and that that was a really productive time for me. I find myself being really productive early in the morning for that reason. But I did go to this one writing kind of workshop for a week in Devon. And we didn't have internet, even though we were a group and we were doing workshops during the day. But there was space to write. Uh, It created enough kind of room for us to produce work if we wanted to. I do find it a bit pressurizing in a way if I give myself, you know, if I go away somewhere to a cottage, let's say, and, you know, give myself two weeks. And then it's like, I have this two weeks, make full use of it. And if you don't, then this time is lost. And it creates a pressure of its own. Unless you go away for, you know, a 
kind of extended period of time or it's quite extensible. You know, you say, fine, I go away for two weeks, but I don't get enough writing done. Let me extend this to four weeks. But I think very few people can manage to do that because they'd have stuff to come back to and, you know, obligations at home and at work and things like that. So, so I would rather create a pocket of time on a daily basis or in my regular life and try to keep to that discipline rather than go somewhere and and lock myself up and then worry about whether I'm getting enough done or not. I imagine it's not very um, creatively helpful to have that sort of pressure on. Yeah, especially when you're starting off, I, I guess a lot of established writers then kind of, you know, build enough bandwidth into their daily lives, you know, to be able to write. But I think especially when you're starting off, there is a lot of pressure on how much you're creating, you know, whether you're you're doing enough with your time. And also because, you know, I think the first couple of books just need a lot of soul searching and editing and rewriting and, you know, revising and really thinking through what what do I want to say? Is this the best way for me to say it? You know, consider the other feedback that's coming in. So you need to spend a lot of time with the text by yourself. If I went away somewhere for two weeks, I don't know if that would have been enough time. I'd I'd, I'd definitely come back with thoughts and ideas, but I don't know if I'd get enough writing done. Yes. And I think, you know, I think it's good to for those listening who may themselves kind of feel that they have a book in them, you know, to make them realise that it's not something where, you know, they have to kind of, you know, leave their job, abandon the other aspects of their life, because who can do that? But actually uh, that your point of making kind of pockets of time around your kind of typical day suddenly makes it feel more accessible, something that can be done. Yeah, I think you have to kind of find a way to fit writing in and make it work as part of a regular life, rather than think of it as an activity that does not exist in your daily life. And and it's something you need to kind of, you know, it's almost a, a parallel life you need to create to be able to write, because that's quite unrealistic. Even as I say it, like you can't have a parallel life. This is the life you have. And, you know, you have yes. to make, yeah, you have to somehow fit the writing into this. Absolutely. Now to change direction, um, just slightly. Uh, obviously, um, mostly books is a it's a small bookshop in Abingdon. Bookselling is what we do. So I'm going to ask you to be a bookseller for a moment. If I was a customer or just someone wanting to talk to you about books, I'd love to know what books have you read sort of more recently that have really really stuck uh, with you. What would you be pulling off the shelf to show me? So a couple of books that I have just finished. One is called A Sabbatical in Leipzig by Adrian Duncan. So Adrian Duncan is an Irish author, and he writes about an Irish man, Michael, who is, I think, in his 60s or could be early 70s even. And he's moved to, uh, he lives in Spain now, so he's moved to a Spanish city. But the entire book is kind of going back and forth in time talking about his growing up years in Ireland and then a sabbatical from work that he took to join his partner, Catherine, in Leipzig and then the death of his partner and and what brought him to Spain. So it's a pretty kind of simple story, if you will. You know, there's a man who is a civil engineer and he grew up in Ireland, then moved to London for a few years, moved to Germany and then moved to Spain and built bridges along the way. That's that's kind of his, his trade. He built bridges. He's a civil engineer. But the way it's written is just so beautiful. It's not a very long book. I think it's 125 pages. But it basically is just this guy kind of with his thoughts because he's now alone. right? And he's older. He's alone. His partner has died. So it's just with his thoughts. 
and we stay with his thoughts and it, you know we kind of almost are following his mind and minds are chaotic so you could smell something and that will take you to something in your childhood which will then you know remind you of an image that will then take you to somewhere in midlife and then a sound could then take you somewhere else in your life and bring you back to the present and that's that's how the book is written just kind of following his mind through the different memories and the triggers that are kind of triggering all these different things in his memory and it was such a beautiful kind of meditation on how minds work and how uh, once we get to a certain point in our lives we think back to our lives but find these interconnections and how we kind of you know one memory can bounce us to another one and we keep kind of going back and forth and i just haven't seen it done at all in this way in any book i thought you know it was experimental but it was also very brave you would make a very good bookseller you <laughs> would you <laughs> it's nice sometimes to take time with a book that dare i say doesn't necessarily have a plot or isn't kind of plot heavy because actually there's a lot that's to be enjoyed in kind of experiencing time in a character's world in their mind and the way you described that you know made it sound really um yeah. like a really enjoyable experience oh i'm glad but also i mean it's 125 pages so it's not like you know you're expected to stay in this character's mind and the story not going anywhere for 400 pages or something right so it's still quite kind of manageable um mm. but still kind of very evolved in in how it's written i had to look the the author up because i i have to admit hadn't heard of him before and he's kind of you know i i he seems like he's in his 30s or 40s so but it's so convincing that you know this this character is in his early 70s let's say and it's just so convincing and how the character is written you would imagine that the author themselves were of that age and that's a real challenge i feel like you know I, I, my my novel has a cast of characters like you said at the start and it takes a lot to be able to put yourself in in the shoes of all these different people of different age groups and you know think about what they would think and i think it's it might be slightly easier to do younger characters because you've gone through that age yourself but it's a lot more challenging to do older characters because you haven't gotten to that point yet but this this was done really convincingly and i imagine as well when you're approaching uh, you know as i sort of mentioned at the beginning that's one thing that really stood out for me with uh, one small voice is the is the characters it feels sort of you know beautiful in their complexity is that something that you found you said this book took you sort of so many years was that kind of one of the things that you kept going back to it, you know it, it must be hard you know creating all of these people and and breathing li- life into them i can't i can't imagine that's a an easy process actually it wasn't hard at all that was the best part and that's what kept me going okay um okay i kind of um when i started i knew what happens at the start and what happens through the middle so the two kind of incidents that the book is you know that are the, that are the tent poles of this novel so you know i i knew where the story was going so it wasn't surprising for me the fun part and the challenging part was how do i take the reader through this journey right from this point a to point b and that's where the characters came in and they kind of really helped to take the story forward themselves they came to me quite fully formed and ready i didn't have to do a lot of work on them if anything i just had to probe you know if i put them in this situation what they would do 
and you know, then I would just kind of know that this is how they would respond. So I don't think it was difficult, but I just had a lot of fun kind of exploring the nuances of the characters. And sometimes they'd surprise me because I wouldn't expect them to behave in a certain way. And then, you know, it would seem like this is the way, this is the right way for them to behave, or this is the right kind of thing for them to say or do. And I'd be like, I, this is fun because I, I just didn't see this coming. You could go in with a plan, you know, I wake up at four and then I'm like, I'll write this chapter today. And you have a plan for that chapter. But once you start putting words on the page, it's just going somewhere else. And and I think that's the fun of writing, because if you knew what you were going to say or do, then, you know, it's it's fun for the reader, but it's not so much fun for you. So you need to be having as much fun writing this piece as, as the reader should as well. And I feel like a lot of that adventure and energy would transfer over to the reading experience as well, if the writer themselves are having fun. Yes, absolutely. I think um, I think you can. Well, you can't always necessarily tell, but I think I don't know. Sometimes you get a flavour of the kind of the passion that has has gone into writing something. I'm interested in you saying that uh, the characters would sort of surprise you. I've heard other writers say before that a kind of good sign is when a character you know, demands that it's written in a certain way, as opposed to you going, well, no, I think this would work for the plot or this would work for the scene. It must be, I don't know, a very uh, wonderful moment when you kind of realise the character sort of leading that and uh, you're just there to to kind of put the right words into place in order to express what's happening. Yeah, it is a funny experience because, I mean, in a way they are your creation and, you know, they can't leap off the page and run away and do their own thing. So you still mm. very much have control over what they're saying or doing. But I think it is equally important to listen to them as well. And I think it's just kind of some some sort of uh, touchstone that we need to develop as we write to know if something is ringing true or not. And identify if something is not ringing true, then it's probably not true to the character and then query yourself for what would make them ring true. Because I think if it's not true or if it's gimmicky, the reader picks that up. If it's kind of, if the character comes across as not genuine or dishonest in any way, it does kind of get picked up by the reader. So it's good to then pause and think, why is it not ringing true? And what is it that the character really wants to do at this point, rather than me trying to put words in their mouth or me trying to, get them to behave in a certain way and it's the other way around as well you know because sometimes if you go in with kind of the brief to yourself is i don't want to write stereotypical characters i want everyone to surprise all the time that's also putting a lot of pressure on yourself and the characters because you know in a way they're also if you think of them as ordinary people they also want to be doing ordinary things and they don't always want to be kind of breaking all the rules and surprising you all the time that would be quite chaotic. So in a way, also knowing kind of where they fall in line and where they break out is also important. That's, and that's a fine balance. Yes, very nicely put how, uh, you know, characters aren't sort of self-conscious of how, you know, re- realistic they are. People aren't, you know, I, I don't sort of go about my day thinking, you know, would does this seem natural? Would I be doing this? Yeah. You know, you, you just do. Yeah. Um, so we're back in the bookshop. Yeah. I'm afraid you'll be doing some more, uh, some more. Yeah, some I have more a job. Serving. I have a job to do. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and this is quite a big question because um, previously we phrased this as a book that's changed your life. And again, if you were turning to an imaginary bookshelf in front of you there, what books would you be getting out to to show me? Yeah, I did think about this question quite a lot. Also, because when it came to me, it was phrased as books that changed your life. 
Uh, and mm. I was like, wow, that is a big question. <laughs> the first book that I'd like to talk about is this book called Trying to Grow by Firdos Ganga. It is this very kind of less known book that I picked up in my school library. And I read it and I kind of put it away. And I was very impressed, but it somehow stayed with me. And, and I'll tell you why in a second. But I also had to look up who this author was, is, you know, when this book was published only recently when, you know, when I decided to talk about this book, because I just haven't read anything else by this author, never heard this book mentioned anywhere. So for those interested, this book was published in 1991. And in the 1990s, there was a BBC TV adaptation of this book, which I'm now really curious to look up and watch. But this book is um, essentially a story of a teenage boy he has a medical condition. I think he has brittle bones. Uh, and if I remember correctly, he's in a wheelchair. And so his mobility is limited. He is in Mumbai, which back then was Bombay. And his uh, he lives with his mother, father, and I think there was a grandmother as well. He's kind of this, he has this really funny, naughty, snide voice. And it's written in first person. Back then, a lot of books I would read, I think most of them would be written in third person. There'd be this narrator narrating a story of characters. This was one of the first kind of books I'd read that was in first person. It just felt so genuine and felt refreshing. But also a lot of that kind of personal humor that a first person narrative allows um, and a third person does not was coming through in the book. And so it's the story of Brit, who is this teenage boy in Bombay, and he has a crush on his newly arrived neighbor, who is this very beautiful man, a very beautiful kind of another beautiful teenage boy. And then later, you know, there's also a relationship with a woman. And Brit's mother is quite obsessed with the British. And part of why his name is Brit is, is because she, you know, she is quite obsessed with the British in colonial times. And she almost rules the kind of the end of colonial times. Uh, and the other reason why he's called Brit is because he has brittle bones. But yeah, I think it's just, it's just like a, I wouldn't even call it coming of age, but because there there's no kind of major climax happening in the end. It's just this boy who is in a wheelchair going through life and having these crushes and, you know, relationships and sexual awakenings. And this was one of the kind of first books I read about bisexuality in India and we still don't have a lot of books that, you know, talk about queerness and gayness and kind of the sexual spectrum coming out of India still. So it has to be one of, you know, one of those books that did it way back in time and did it really well. And for me, kind of grappling with questions of sexuality back then in my teens, this was quite eye opening. And in a way, the tone itself was so liberating, but also kind of the context of Brit's disability made it even more interesting because here was this boy in a wheelchair and the story could have been a lot of different things, could have been, you know, a sad story, could have been a sorry story, but he didn't care. It was a fact of life for him. But what he was really concerned about was this hot guy next door and how to hang out with him and how to get his attention. And that's kind of all of us in our teenage years. You know, we're all in our own situations, mm. all, you know, grappling with like, you know, there's school, there's family, there's kind of, there's classmates, there's 
bullying and all of that you know feeling yourself not fitting in i'm sure everybody has kind of their challenges in their teenage years but a lot of the teenage years is also uh, occupied by just kind of crushing on people right you spend a lot of time thinking about your infatuations and crushes and that's what brit yeah, was doing as well a lot of time yes a lot of time <laughs> and that's what brit was doing as well and it was just refreshing i mean i i i'd love to go back to it's out of print in the uk unfortunately and somebody listening to this should please go print this book and put it back on shelves but it is in print in india i checked it's available on amazon india uh so when i go back the next time i'm in india i'm going to i'm going to buy this book again and reread it um thanks for asking the question because it reminded me of this book and yeah made me think about it again absolutely and that and that sounds wonderful as well because as you say you know with a with a central character with a disability this book could have become many things and um it's telling that it feels from how you've described it refreshing now that it's a you know a character with a disability but that doesn't become the sort of central crux of the story that actually it's it's about you know another human being kind of enjoying their life enjoying that you know very teenage thing of um heavily crush it you know when when it's a teenage crush it's you know it's it's serious it takes up a lot of a uh, oh lot my of god time. it is it is so real yeah oh absolutely it's it's you know it's uh it's a power that's not to yeah not to be not to be messed with and you know no wonder the teenage years are so stressful because uh you know it's uh yeah not not a time of life i'd necessarily re- revisit um but yeah that book yeah absolutely if someone is listening to this who can who can get the the button push that will cause more of that to be printed in the uk we would we would definitely have that in mostly books that sounds like a, a fantastic a, a fantastic book thank you so i'll move on to the second one yeah yeah absolutely it's called the reluctant fundamentalist by mohsin hamid it's quite well known it is set in post uh, 9/11 new york when young pakistani man travels to new york well he's already been there he's gone to america he's gone to university he has an amazing job i think it's in consulting or in the financial sector in new york and he thinks you know he's living the capitalist dream and this is what life is supposed to be he's having fun he's in new york city but also like all his friends are very diverse and he feels like he's on top of the world you know this is what life and liberation and youth is all about until 911 happens and that then kind of really raises questions on identity on what we really stand for what our value systems are the reason why this book is so special is that it does it both from an internal and external point of view so it shows us the shift in perceptions and how kind of he is perceived and the labels of identity that are put on him in a post 9/11 world and how he is responding to the external world changing but there's also a lot of kind of introspection on what it really means to be a person of color in a post 9/11 world in the heart of the 9/11 attacks and therefore you know what should we stand for how should we behave and it goes down to kind of the very day to day where is this still the job that I should be working on do I still believe in this kind of capitalistic mission or should I be spending time doing something else with my life and that's what made this book so special i think i mean for me it was obviously not close to my experience but closer to me in terms of identity and you know place in the world because pakistan india are neighboring countries so seeing a south asian person 
going through this experience uh, of being kind of a global citizen, but also really having an awakening in terms of their identity. And like I said, that kind of interiority and exteriority and the friction between the two was just beautifully done. And it's also a very smartly written book. Again, another first-person narrative has very strong moments and you stay with the character. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 really, it's really smart. It's really ahead of its time. I don't think there was a book back then that was doing, you know, that was saying these things with so much directness, but also with so much kind of refinement. And in a way, for me, I feel like that was the book when I read it, I felt like, cool, I could write something. You know, if this is a book that is has done so well and is being read by the whole world, then maybe maybe there is a way to tell our stories and they will be read too. And because I think growing up, there was a lot of kind of exposure to the English classics, none of which were based in our parts of the world. So it always felt like, you know, yeah, I love books and I love stories, but I don't see a place for kind of our stories. I mean, there isn't a place on the shelf, really. And it made me feel like, cool, this, 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 you know, I could write something and this could go somewhere. So that I would say like that kind of was the seed of inspiration for me to become a writer. So that's another book that I that I really hold up as an inspiration. Absolutely. And it, you know, it's a real reflection of kind of the, energy that can be gained from reading a book in which uh more so than other books you've read before you see you know something even if it's just an aspect sort of reflected back at you that you think yes you know i haven't seen this before and uh, and this is something i can that speaks to me the energy of that that uh a, a big reaction i think to that is that sense of oh well actually yes i can you know i can tell stories as well stories that in some way will kind of reflect the, you know the world we live in and specifically that you know that the part of the world or or how i sort of move through the world that's a real testament to the power of that writing and um you know mosin does have that we were very fortunate to have him on the last season of the podcast has that very uh very sort of succinct sharp writing direct as you yeah. said i think direct is a really yeah, yeah. it's a really good description of that I think uh, I saw, um, I hope you don't mind me mentioning this, on your social media somewhere, I think you had shared uh, you going to a signing, I think, with, uh, <laughs> with uh, Mosin and so, sort of mentioning something about sort of fangirling or something like that. It sounds like, yeah, obviously a, a sort of a big uh, inspiration and, uh, and influence of yours. Yeah, this was um, in 2011 and I was at the Jaipur Literature Festival and Mosin was there and uh, he was on stage talking about his book and then I had... Uh, my copy of Reluctant Fundamentalist and Mott Smoke. And I literally like ran and I think there was a bit of a queue <laughs> um, and I got them signed. But the the person managing the queue was kind of moving us along because there was quite a queue. So I didn't really get to say anything. And then afterwards, uh, a bit later, I think we'd kind of, you know, we'd broken for lunch and stuff. And I was outside the gate of the venue and Mohsen came out and he was you know, getting into his car and I literally rushed to him and, and I was like, I, uh, hi, it's really good to meet you. I just want to tell you I'm a huge fan. And he was just, he, like, he, he, get, he must have, like, he must get this every day. He's like, oh yeah, yeah, nice to meet you. Thank you. Thanks for saying that. And he got into his car and drove away. And I just, I, I was just standing there for some time feeling like, this is awesome. <laughs> yes. The most important day of my life. <laughs> That's a wonderful image, particularly, yes, because he does seem to have, I don't know, he's very sort of, 
you know, he takes it, he takes it all in. He had quite a, you know, interviewing him. He was very sort of chilled and just, you know, yeah, he's very measured. calm. And, he's, yeah, yeah, he's very calm. Yeah. Um, I'm aware as well. I want to obviously we want to get on to one small voice as well. So if you could give us the third book that you mentioned that uh, was a big influence as well. Yeah. Uh, so this is uh, Elena Ferrante's uh, My Brilliant Friend Quartet. And um, this is not a book, but kind of a set of four books. Uh, but it follows the friendship of Elena and uh, Lila. Uh, it starts in Naples in a very kind of working class community in Naples, I'd say somewhere in the 1950s, and then kind of tracks them through the next 60 years. So their kids had started in the, in the beginning, and then a lot of things happen through the years. But at the core of it is this friendship between these two girls. But there's also a lot in there about kind of evolution of Italy in the post-war years and the different kind of social, political changes that are happening in the country. And there's also, again, a very, very rich cast of characters I think there's about 50, 60 different people in the book. And she really kind of gives them their space. Um, and she never takes the reader's intelligence for granted. You know, I, I don't I don't think she's ever stopped to wonder, is this too many characters? Would they be able to remember, you know, and there's also all these kind of connections, you know, like this is this one's brother, that is that one's sister. This happened to them, like, you know, the, by the time you're at the fourth book, something happened to somebody in the second book. But she never takes the reader's intelligence for granted. And she trusts her memory. She trusts her ability to latch ourselves onto characters. And each character is really given the space to breathe. And, you know, they could be nasty one minute, but they could be totally charming the next minute. And that's how human beings are. Uh, you know, we can't put ourselves kind of on a on a straight line, you know. And we're also reflections of... We're not just ourselves, we're reflecting off of kind of what's coming at us, you know. So if th there could be settings where I am one thing and another setting, I'm completely different. I could be really closed up and formal in a certain setting, but really friendly and warm in another setting. And I think that's what we need to give our character. So for me, I read this book when I'd written a couple of drafts of One Small Voice and was really struggling with this characterization because I could see that my natural tendency was to let characters be who they want to be. But I also kind of, I, this was early days, so I didn't also have the skills to make that happen on the page. So either my characters were a bit one tone or I was going into kind of like pages of explanation as to why they had behaved differently and why they had managed to surprise us. And none of them, you know, was doing the job. And I read, when I read Ferrante, I felt like this, you know, I can just leave it to the reader to, to draw their own conclusions. And, you know, they might really like a character and the, the character might then disappoint them later in the book. But that is fine because that's what human beings do. You know, we might we might really like somebody until they do something that might really, you know, tick us off or whatever. So finding that freedom to let my characters live and breathe on the page was a real revelation. And I think the draft of One Small Voice that I wrote after reading these books just came out kind of feeling a lot more true to the characters. And that's why this is one of the very important books, because it helped me write my first novel with a kind of confidence that I didn't have before. Absolutely. And it, it seems I can really, one of the books I will sort of sell to people in the shop is the My Brilliant Friend Quartet. And having read One Small Voice, that sense of characters and how they move through the world 
how they're rooted or how they're not rooted in kind of um, very specific places. Obviously, you know, Naples is almost a kind of character itself in, in the books. I can really see that in one small voice, that same sense of, you know, I felt if I went to sort of Naples now, I'd almost expect to meet the characters from Elena Frante's books in the same sense that, you know, the, the, the characters in one small voice just feel so beautifully real in that way that, yes, they can surprise you in bad ways, you know, in the same way that people we know can. They can, you know, do something and you think, why have you done that? What are you doing? And that's one of the joys of reading One Small Voice is that, you know, just that kind of enjoying the humanity of it is wonderful. But I want to pause there because before we sort of, you know, um, talk a bit more about your book, I'm giving you the very hard task now. And I, I realise this is quite cruel of me, of the in this bookshop scenario, the next book you're putting off the shelf to tell me about is your own, is One Small Voice. What made you bring this book into the world? So One Small Voice is what I call a modern Indian millennial novel. It is a story of Shubhankar Trivedi, who also goes by the nickname Shabi. Uh, and it is a coming-of-age story of a young man in contemporary India. It starts in the early 1990s when Shabi is 10 years old. He unfortunately witnesses an incident of mob violence during riots that have kind of gripped the country. And for various reasons, he decides not to talk about what he has seen. So he keeps it bottled up. The story then follows him over the next 25 years. On the one hand, he's trying to find a way out of that trauma. But on the other hand, he is also a very kind of ordinary you know, young person growing up and he's experiencing life as a child, as an adolescent, as a young adult who has moved to you know, the big city of Mumbai to work. And it is really the story of you know, the, the young and how they are relating to and perceiving the world around them, be it the politics, be it the social changes, be it the dynamics with the family, which, you know, um, which I feel like a lot of my generation of Indians, we have a slightly different sense of the world than our parents did. And so there's a lot of stuff to kind of sort out with them in terms of, you know, what they think the world should be and what we should be doing versus what we think our lives should be like. So there's that dynamic as well. So yeah, it's really about the young and how they perceive the country around them. And in a way, through Shabi's life, I'd say it is also a reflection of contemporary India and its last 30 years, which has been a period of immense change, immense transformation, social, economic, political and how that has affected individual lives, how that has impacted relationships between people, what that has meant for communities. So we get kind of, you know, we get snippets of all of that through through Shabby and all the different characters and, you know, the changes that happen in their lives over this period of time. You've sold it. You've done it again. You know, one thing that really interested me, particularly because something you were saying earlier when you were talking about the Frante, about, you know, that characters don't sort of go in a straight line or, or people certainly don't and of course your book has this sort of wonderful structure where we sort of shift in time when did that idea come to you was that quite early on this idea of you know of kind of sort of non-linear or was that something that came later on in the in the process for you um yeah it was something that came much later so the initial few drafts were all written in a linear way so it started at the start ended at the end we see shabby grow up and go through life and that was actually something that my agent said to me. So she, when she read the manuscript and she offered representation, she said a lot of the good stuff is in the second half. And a lot of that is attributed to the fact that he's kind of 
growing up in the first half of the story. I wanted to, I was very clear that I wanted to write the story from the point of view of characters at that point in time. So if the scene is happening, it's almost in scenes. So if the scene is happening in 1993, mm. then the characters exist in 1993. And I find that most books write about childhood in almost like in a flashback sort of way, where you have the adult wisdom and the adult reflection on what happened so that you can explain to the reader, you know, where where you sat on the rungs of society, what was happening around you, what your relationships were. And I did not want that sort of adult voice to dictate the child experience. I wanted each character to kind of experience life as they're experiencing it in real time. But what that meant was that the protagonist then is obviously quite unformed because he's a child and he's an adolescent and he's seen this thing, this very kind of defining experience has happened in his life. He's acting out in a lot of very unpredictable ways, but he's not being able to explain to the reader why. And, you know, because he's still unformed, he doesn't know how to. So it then made sense to think about how to bring some of the latter parts into the first half of the book, because the reader could then have something to kind of grasp instead of just kind of spending 200 pages with this growing up child and, you know, their kind of unformed thoughts going off in all different directions. So that's where this structure came from, where it goes into different timelines. The other reason is, so like I said, something happens at the start of the novel, which is this incident that Shabby witnesses, and then something happens midway through the novel, which I won't give away. But Shabby goes into a kind of a prolonged period of trauma post that incident. And I felt like I really wanted to explore that. I really wanted to explore kind of those years where he's kind of closed off from the world, but also what it means to to have him gone through something like that and, you know, what, what the world wants of you. The world wants of you to kind of, you know, become normal as soon as possible. It's like, yeah, yeah, this thing happened. Come on, get on your feet. You know, you can do this, da-da-da. So what the world is telling you versus what you are feeling. And I wanted to take my time with that. And that's why I wanted to use these chapters in the present day to really delve into all those different facets of that experience of trauma. Because if I'd left it in a linear way, what was happening in the linear structure was all of those chapters were kind of just dumped together after that incident. Mm. And that wasn't a, that wasn't a good reading experience because, you know, you were spending hundred pages just kind of reading about this character in trauma, but also the story needed to move forward. So, you know, I myself found that I was, discounting a lot of the things that I wanted to say. I wasn't spending enough time doing it. And this structure really allowed for those years to be spread out and for us to really get a sense of what what his state of mind is in those years. And it leads to a, a very beautiful sort of um, haunting throughout the novel, is how I'd put it, and there might not be the right word. And again, without giving anything away, we're aware that you know something has happened and then also this event that happens earlier on in Shabby's life it you know kind of then also you know haunts him afterwards and the structure of that works sort of yeah beautifully for the reader because we're you know we're sometimes aware of these kind of you know things lurking in the background we know we will we will get there but we're sort of you know putting the the pieces together no I'm so glad it worked and uh, because that was something I was oh, good I was not very sure about, you know, how this would come across, how, you know, whether it would be a seamless reading experience, you know, mm. kind of switching between these two time periods. Um, but yeah, it was also interesting 
in terms of it's almost it gives it a bit of a thriller element and i'm quite cinematic in my head so i think of it in scenes like i i have kind of visual cues for all of these characters and where they are and you know the the flats they live in and the you know the street they live on and so on so i'm a very visual person and for me these are almost like if each of this was an episode then you know you would start with the present day and then move to the back to the back story and that's how i was thinking of it and that almost gives you a a sense of right something is to come so so it keeps you reading wanting to wanting mm. to know what is what what is that incident that happened to him and that has put him in this state of mind and you know as well it's um it's got that great sense of kind of interior worlds and kind of the way the sort of the scenes are built as well also again makes it an incredibly readable book you know you want to once you finish one scene as as you've called it you know you you're you want to go on to the next one because of how sort of richly written it is as well i'm aware that time wise unfortunately we're sort of we're getting to the end of our, our conversation I, I believe we've asked for a reading if you've got a segment from the book that you would like to read if you'd like to go ahead with that it would be great to hear some of the words Thank you. Yeah, I do have a section in the novel this is where Shabi is uh, he he's got a job in Mumbai so he grows up in a smaller north indian city of lucknow and then he moves to mumbai for work uh and this scene is where he's kind of on a flight moving to mumbai for the first time 2000s y2k shabi the man arched his eyebrows in surprise huh My name is Shabi he repeated and settled into his seat it was an e neither aisle nor window he felt foolish not asking for a window seat at the check-in counter he hadn't even known about checking in no one had to check in for indian railways subramaniam the man in the aisle seat introduced himself the south indian name placing him confidently on the map he still seemed hopeful that shabi would reveal more about his origins but shabi looked away He was a 24-year-old on his first flight ever. He wasn't going to spoil it making small talk. Shabi, the name had bounced off his tongue that first day of engineering college as he introduced himself to the other students. It gave away nothing where he was from, his religion, caste, even gender. He could be anything, anyone. As far as he was concerned, Shubhankar Trivedi was dead. The others had been the same. Sunil was sunny. Kashyap was Kash, Ramesh was Mesh. The ones who didn't rename themselves were named by friends. The dark skin was Kalia, short one was Tingu, pothead was Ganjeri. Everyone deserved a second chance. It was the new millennium, Y2K. They had left their parents' homes forever. A new life beckoned. Shantini, thank you for uh, finishing with that wonderful reading from One Small Voice, which, once this podcast is released, will be available at Mostly Books, in shop and online, um, but also available at your local independent. Shantini, thank you so much for joining us on Mostly Books Meets. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure chatting. Mostly Books Meets is presented and produced by the bookselling team at Mostly Books, an award-winning bookshop located in Abingdon, Oxfordshire. All of the titles mentioned in this episode are available through our shop or your preferred local independent. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out our previous guests, which include some of the most exciting voices in the world of books. Thanks for listening and a happy reading. Hold up. 